week five in a series that we started several weeks ago now that we've been calling No End in Death. And if you're uh, just jumping in and joining us for this series, thanks so much for being here. And basically, in a nutshell, what we've been doing in this series is we have been dealing with what we said is quite honestly one of the most common but also one of the most difficult questions slash objections that surrounds the Christian faith. And so simply put, the question that we're investigating in this series is this. Uh, why does and how does, why does God allow pain, suffering, and loss? How can a loving God allow pain, suffering, and loss? And that's the question that we've been journeying through. And we've been saying, man, this is a really, really important question. It's also a very difficult question, but we also said it's an extremely common question. Uh, this is a question that's been asked many different times by many different people in many different ways. And we said, in fact, most of us in this room, if not all of us, have probably found ourselves at one point or another genuinely wrestling with this question. In fact, some of you right now, you might be in the crucible of pain, suffering, and loss of some type to some scale, to some various degree, and you might be genuinely struggling with this. Man, how can a God who says he loves me, how can a God who apparently is committed to my flourishing, why would he and how does he allow pain, suffering, and, and loss? And so we said because of that, because this is a hard question, because this is a difficult question, and because, quite honestly, this is a deeply personal question, uh, we said we want to take this series and we just want to kind of dissect this question and talk about what is the biblical response to that. Uh, what is the Christian response to that question? How can a loving God allow pain, suffering, and loss? And so the way we've been approaching this, once again, if you're just joining us, is each week we've been looking at what we've been calling a different anchor statement. Uh, there are six anchor statements that we've been surveying through this series. And basically those anchor statements, they're, they're essentially unassailable principles that come right out of the Bible. And these anchor statements serve not only as an overview of what the Bible teaches regarding suffering, but they also serve as anchors, right? When we're going through the storms of life, where can you, where can you put your trust? Where can you put your hope? What can bear weight in the midst of the storms of life? And we said that these anchor statements are intended to help us and equip us when we are in the midst of pain and suffering. And so again, just as an overview, so far, uh, this is our fifth week, and so we've looked at an anchor statement each week. So just a quick overview of those anchor statements. Week one was our first anchor statement, and we looked at this. This was that statement, no end in death. No end in death. And what we said that week is we said that those who follow Jesus, and of course, we know that not everyone in this room follows Jesus. Some of you are still investigating that. You're trying to figure that out still. But for those of us who do follow Jesus, we said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hope that undergirds the Christian response to pain and suffering. That that is the ultimate answer to pain and suffering. Because what the resurrection tells us is it tells us that death, pain, and loss do not have the final say, and they are not in vain. And so we talked about that. The second week we were together, we looked at the second anchor statement. Our second anchor statement, simply put, was this. I can't always be certain of God's reasons, but I can be certain of his love. And we said, man, the Bible teaches us this, that we can't always be certain of God's reasons, but we can be certain of God's love. And so we basically said that the Bible teaches us that God is the creator and that we are part of his creation. And by sheer definition, that necessitates that there are some things that are outside of our intellectual capabilities. And so it is reasonable for us to believe that just because we don't see purpose in our pain doesn't mean that there isn't any. Uh, because there are things that God understands that we don't understand. And because he is the creator and we are the created, his, his wisdom is infinitely greater than ours. And so we said we can't always be certain of his reasons. But we did say one thing we can always be certain of, though, is God's love. We can always be certain of his love. Because the crucifixion, 
Because the cross, it tells us that God was so committed to human flourishing that he himself didn't exempt himself from pain, suffering, and loss, but instead he took those things on himself for our sake. So we talked about that. The third week we were together, our third anchor statement was, my adversity is an opportunity for unimaginable glory. And that week we basically looked at an inseparable link in the Bible that, is, that exists between suffering and glory. And the Bible says that suffering is a means to unimaginable glory. And then last week, if you're with us, we looked at our fourth anchor statement. Our fourth anchor statement was this. It was not all suffering is the same, but God can use it all. And we said that, man, according to scripture, suffering is not a one-size-fits-all kind of deal. There is not one singular reason why we suffer. There are many different reasons that suffering shows up in our lives. It's actually kind of complicated. But we said, the Bible tells us that. The Bible says there's all different types of suffering for all different types of reasons. But the one thing they have in common is that God can use them all. And God wants to use them all to accomplish his purposes. And so this week is week five. I would encourage you, if you missed the previous weeks and anything I just said sounds intriguing or confusing, uh, to just rewind, go back, listen to those. You can catch that on our podcast, on our website. All of that is for free and it's for you. And you can check that out. But today, we're gonna be looking at our fifth anchor statement and we're gonna be spending all of our time unpacking this statement. So let me give it to you right out of the gate and then we'll take the rest of our time just kind of talking about that. Here's what it is, all right? Here's our fifth anchor statement. This fire will not consume me, but refine me. Okay, this fire will not consume me, but refine me. All right, that's the fifth anchor statement. Now, some of you are like, what does that even mean? All right, well, that's what we're gonna talk about. And to unpack that anchor statement, I wanna encourage you to grab your Bibles with me, and we're gonna go to James chapter one. All right, so get your Bibles if you got them. Now let's turn together to James chapter one. As always, if you did not bring a Bible this morning, that is not a problem. We have some for you in those chairs, these black Bibles that look like this. And you can turn to page 847 in those black Bibles is where you're gonna find James chapter one. And also let me say that if you're a guest and you don't own a Bible, just take a copy, all right? Make it a gift from us to you. We think it's really important that you have a Bible of your own. And so you can just have one of ours. Okay, so James one. And as you guys are flipping to James chapter one, uh, let me give you a quick story. So um, this week, this past week, I was talking with, with uh, some of the students who go to, our, uh, to the Medina East campus here, and they were asking me some questions about my toes, uh, which might sound kind of weird, except that I was wearing flip-flops, and it's pretty obvious when I'm wearing flip-flops that you can see that I don't have any big toenails. Okay, I don't have any big toenails. So some of you are like, that is way too much information. I <laughs> did not need to know that, right? And, uh, and, and the truth, I don't have any big toenails, and, and I'm not going to get into the whole story of how that came to be. It's actually kind of complicated, and plus, I know some of you want to eat lunch after this, and I don't want to ruin your appetite. But long story short is, uh, I was 17 years old, and I was trying to impress a girl, and as I was doing that, I ended up injuring my toes pretty severely. And, uh, and the result of that injury was that my toenails never grew back correctly, they grew back really weird, and that resulted in all kinds of pain, all kinds of gross, all kinds of discomfort. And so over the course of about three years, I underwent no less than three surgical procedures to try to correct that, and all of them failed. And, and so basically for three years, I was in perpetual pain. My toes hurt all the time. It was so uncomfortable, so much discomfort. So finally, I was in college now. I, was about, I think I was either a freshman or sophomore in college. And I was like, I can't take this anymore. This is driving me crazy. I have to get something done. And so I went to a place in downtown Chicago, because I went to school in Chicago, called Dr. Scholl's School of Podiatry. And I thought, man, if anyone knows anything about feet, 
It's these guys. And so I, I remember I, I went in there. I didn't know anybody or know anything. I was just like, look, my toes are driving me crazy. I got to do something about it. And they, they basically said, they said, okay, there's, there's a couple things we can do. The first thing is we can try uh, some of the surgical procedures that you've already tried. They said, but there's no hope. There's, I mean, there's, not, there's no promise that it's going to end, uh, end and result in, in recovery. I said, okay. They said, but there's a, second, there's a second surgery. And they said, and we guarantee this will solve the problem. They said, it's actually pretty simple. It's about a half hour. You're going to come in. It's local anesthetic. It's outpatient surgery. You'll be in and out in a half hour. They said, but the problem is you will never have big toenails again. This will remove your toenails forever. And they said, you might want to think about that because it's going to look really weird. And I remember I was like, I don't care how it looks. Okay, I don't care about, I just want to get this done. I'm tired of being in, in pain. I'm tired of the discomfort. So I scheduled the appointment. And I'll never, I'll never forget when I walked into the room, the operation room for the first time. Uh, the nurse took me into the room. And I still remember this so vividly because when she walked me in, uh, there was a chair. And it looked like, kind of like a dentist chair. And then next to the chair, there was a table. And on the table was a bunch of surgical tools. And all, among those tools, I remember seeing them, there was a number of different scalpels of different sizes and different lengths. There was a, a, a grouping of scissors that were there. Um, there was a bunch of needles, which I, I don't really know what those were for. And then I kid you not, and this is the thing that got me, there was what looked like a pair of craftsman pliers just sitting there. And that put so many disturbing images in my mind I remember I started feeling weak. Like I was like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. I'm not sure. I was like, oh, dear God. You know, and, 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 and I remember, but I remember this, this, this thought crossed my mind. I still remember this so vividly. I remember thinking, if I can just get through this, if I can just endure whatever's about to happen for the next half an hour, I will never have to do this again. I remember that thought going through my mind. I remember thinking, if I can just get through this pain and whatever disturbing images are going to be burned in my brain as a result of this, if I can just get through this pain, it will make me better, right? And so, so listen, I literally had to think my way in that chair. I had to ignore my feelings because I was terrified. I had to ignore my instincts because our basic instincts are to recoil from pain, right? I had to ignore all of that and I had to think my way into that chair. And I had to think, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. I mean, not for the next half an hour, but after that, it's going to be good. This is going to be worth it, right? I had to think my way through it. And you know what? It's exactly what happened. Surgery went great. It went as, uh, as expected. It's actually kind of funny. After the surgery, I walked home, which was hysterical because my feet were numb. So I'm pretty sure I looked like a drunk. I just looked like a drunk walking down Chicago, you know, and doing that. And everyone's probably like, oh, it's pretty normal, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and that type of thing, and, and it worked. To this day, I still don't have any big toenails. And like I said, some of you are like, I did not need to know that. Some of you are like, I'm actually kind of fascinated. What does that look like? And uh, if you want to know, I brought some pictures. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. It actually kind of looks like chicken nuggets, to be honest, <laughs> honest with you. So <laughs> any hope of you having chicken nuggets for lunch, it's gone. Or maybe ever, you know. That's good. But, but some of you are like, what does that have to do with pain, suffering, and loss? Well, besides the fact that some of you had to suffer through that story, um, that, that story is saying, what, in that story, I am telling you exactly what James tells us in James chapter 1. And so today what we're going to do is we're actually going to look, look through only three verses in the book of James. These verses are familiar to some of you. They are so unbelievably powerful, and there's so much for us in these verses. So let's just read them. Only three verses. We're going to start in verse 2. So let's check this out. Here's what James says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know 
that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, again, three short verses. That's all we're going to really be looking at today. But those three short verses, though they might be familiar to some of you, they are loaded with such incredible resources for you and I today. Amazing things. And I just want to kind of dissect these. We'll go verse by verse. I want you to notice, go back to verse 2, and I want you to notice what James says. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face many trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. I want to draw your attention to two terms that James uses there. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know. It's interesting, isn't it? James says, consider it joy because of what you know to be true. That's really fascinating. It's actually interesting. If you take that term consider it uh, or consider and you pull it back into the original language, the New Testament was written, the New Testament was written in Greek. And if you pull that back into the Greek language, the word consider it literally means this. It means to make up your mind now, not later. It's actually a term that's used in the accounting world back then. It means put it in your ledger. It means to make an intellectual appraisal of your situation, right? Here's what it means. It literally means think. He says, consider it, man. Think about it. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know something. Because of what you know. Now, I think it's interesting that James doesn't say consider it pure joy because of what you feel. See, James knows better than that. And we know better than that, don't we? Because all of us know that when we, when we journey through pain, suffering, and loss, that our feelings scream so loudly that sometimes it can be hard to hear anything else. In fact, some of you right now, you, you might be going through something, some kind of pain, some kind of suffering, some kind of loss right now that you're journeying through, and you, you would be able to testify to this, that your emotions, that your feelings scream so loudly in the midst of your pain, don't they? And one of the things that you also know, and that I know, is that our feelings are notoriously inconsistent. They are notoriously inconsistent. And you can go from, from being despairing to sad to depressed to angry to hopeful to hopeless all in one day. And so what that tells us is this, is it tells us when we go through pain and we go through suffering and we go through loss, we need something that's transcendent above our emotions to get us through. Right? That's not to negate emotions. Emotions are important. But it's to say we can't be driven by our emotions, right? It, so, so that's what James says. Listen, no, no, no. It's not because of what you feel. Don't consider it pure joy because, because of what you feel. But because of something that you know. You know. Think. Think is what he says. It's interesting. Uh, some people who uh, criticize Christianity, uh, one of the biggest criticisms is they'll say, oh, Christianity, that's like a, a check your brain at the door type of religion, Right? And, and it requires that you just have faith and you never, you never ask questions and you, and you never enforce reason and you never think through things. They, they want you to think less and think less. And listen, that is the opposite of what the Bible tells us. That's the opposite of what James says. He says, no, think more. Think more, not think less. Think more. This is a thinking thing, right? Consider it pure joy because you know something. You think about my toe surgery. That was exactly the same situation. I had to think my way into that chair. I couldn't go by what I felt because if I went by how I felt, I would have never sat in that chair. I couldn't go with my instincts because if I did that, I would have never sat in that chair. I had to think myself there because I knew something. And what did I know? I knew that this was going to be good. I knew that the end product was going to be better, that I would be better because of this pain. And I knew that. That's what drove me 
to sit in that chair. And so he says the same thing. And so the question then is this, for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know not everyone follows Jesus, what is it that James is assuming that we know? What is it that we know that helps us to consider our trials pure joy? Well, he says it, look at verse three. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other words, what James says here is he says, we know something, and what do we know? We know that God is testing our faith. And we know that that testing is gonna result in perseverance, and that perseverance is gonna result in something good. It's actually really fascinating, that term, the testing of your faith. Some of you have translations that say, the proving of your faith. It's actually a really great term, and it actually has a visual attached to it. Um, In the original context in which this was written, uh, that term testing or proving actually was used almost exclusively in the context of metalworking. And so if you think about metalworkers for a minute, uh, metalworkers will oftentimes use stoves or fires or, or contained heat as a way of proving or testing the genuineness of a precious metal, right? And so, and so a metal worker, if he has gold, he will put that gold into an oven and he will crank the heat up and it will burn away any of the impurities and it will burn away any of the alloys and it will leave you with something that is genuine, with something that is pure and with something that is refined. And that is the exact image that James is trying to give us. That, by the way, is the same image that the whole New Testament gives us, that our pain and our suffering, for those of us who follow Jesus, that it is a picture of this refiner's fire, that it's like an oven, right? Or it's like a stove. I actually think, by the way, I think it's a really helpful metaphor. And I'll tell you why, because think about this. Think about this for a minute. What is an oven? What is an oven? Think about your oven. What is an oven? Here's what an oven is. An oven is incredible heat that is under precision control. Isn't that true? That's what it is. Your oven at home has a bunch of controls on it. You can control the temperature. You can control the time. You can control the type of flame. So you can broil things. You can bake things. And so what is it? It's incredible heat that's under precision control. And the reason those controls are on there is because you, as the master chef or the cook that you are, you know that if you're cooking up a dish, that that in order to get a specific result, it takes a certain temperature at a certain time with a certain type of flame to get that desired outcome, right? And that's the picture that the Bible gives us about our pain. It's the same thing. It It is unbelievable heat. It is incredible heat that is under precision control. That's the picture the Bible wants us to understand about the pain and the suffering that we're going through. There's similar metaphors in the Bible too. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that our pain, that we can be, it says it this way, it says that you and I can be trained by our suffering. And the word trained there is the same word where we get the word gymnasium from or gym. Think about it for a minute. When you go to the gym, what is the gym? The gym is unbelievable pain underneath precision control. That's what it is, right? When you go to the gym, what do you do? You inflict pain on yourself. That's what you do. That's why you have the meatheads going, man, feel the burn. Love it. Love it, right? And they don't love the pain. They love the result. It's precision control. It's unbelievable pain. And, and, and all of us know this, especially if you're a physical trainer. Too much pain, and you can permanently injure yourself. And not enough pain, and you will not be strengthened in the way that you desire. But just the right amount of pain, just the precision pain that's under control will, will, will make you stronger. 
and it will produce the desired results that you want. Just think about it. What is the difference between surgery and torture, right? Um, at a first glance, not a whole lot, especially when there's craftsman pliers involved, right? Not a whole lot, but the big difference is the result. What is surgery? Surgery is wounding somebody with precision control. That's what it is. And, and I think that's really helpful because here's what the Bible tells those of us who follow Jesus. And once again, I know not everyone does, but here's what the Bible tells us about our pain. The Bible tells us that pain in the hands of an incredibly sovereign and loving God is incredible heat, it is incredible pain, it is incredible wounds under precision control. That, that listen, God does not cause pain. And we'll talk about that later. God is not the source of pain. It does not flow from God. But pain and suffering and loss is not outside of the control of God. God is in control of those things. And he uses those things at exactly the right time, for exact, at exactly the right temperature, with exactly the right kind of flame to produce the results that he wants from us. So the Bible tells us. And so here's what we know. Here's what we know. This flame, this fire... For those of us who walk with Jesus and who follow him, it will not consume you. It will refine you. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 43, or I mean, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 43. I love this. God says this. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Here's a promise that God gives to us. He says, look, if you walk with me through your pain and suffering, if you stay faithful to me, if you, if you keep me in your life when you go through pain and suffering, this fire will not consume you. It will refine you. It is an oven. It is a gym. It is like surgery. And God is gonna use this, this real pain. It's real. We're not, we're, not, we're not underestimating or for a minute minimizing the realness of pain. But what we are saying is this. God doesn't waste one ounce of suffering. He uses every square inch of the pain and suffering that you're going through to produce the results that he desires. This fire will not consume you. If you walk with God, it will refine you and it will make you more like him. That's what the Bible's telling us. And, and, and basically, this is why James says, look man, consider it pure joy. Not because you like the pain, right? That, that we're not masochistic. Don't consider it pure joy because you're going through pain. Consider it pure joy because you know something. And you know that it's going to be good. That this pain in the hands of a sovereign God is going to lead to something better for you. Something good for you. And some of you are like, okay, well, well what kind of good can God bring out of suffering then? Just, just maybe tell me that. What, kind, what, what good things can God produce out of suffering? I'll tell you, the Bible gives us a lot. I'll just give us three for our conversation's sake. The good things that God can produce from our suffering. Here's the first one. Suffering can, can totally, God can use it to refine our faith. He wants to use it and he does use it to help refine our faith. And over and over again throughout the Bible, over and over again, what do you see? The testing of your faith, the refining of your faith, the proving of your faith, right? And, and God says, sometimes I will yield pain, I will yield suffering in your life so that I can test your faith. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because how do, you, how do you know the strength of something unless you test it? You don't know the strength of something unless you test it. You can say, I can say, I love God. God is all I need. God is my everything. I can say that, but I don't actually know that until I'm put in, put in situations and in circumstances where that is proven and where that is tested. 
And so the Bible says that, man, that's what God wants to do. He wants to allow suffering and allow pain in your life. He doesn't cause it, but he wants to allow it so that he can make you stronger in your faith, that he can refine your faith and make you stronger as a result of it. But my guess is there are some of you who are in this room right now and you have journeyed through serious pain and you have journeyed through serious suffering, things that are unimaginable to me. And my guess is if you walked with God through that pain and suffering and if you're on the other side, my guess is that the result is you have a deeper intimacy with God. You have a depth of relationship with Jesus that is beyond just a surface level, shallow relationship. You have something deep with him. And God's saying, that's what I'm going after, man. I want to refine your faith. I want to strengthen your trust in me. That's what I want to do. And so he wants to refine our faith. That's one good thing God wants to do in our pain. Here's another one. I'll give you a second one. God wants to remove our pride. He wants to remove our pride. And, and remember we said that this is a fire, that suffering and trials, it's like an oven, and it's going to burn away impurities. It's going to burn away the things that actually are harmful to us. And one of the most harmful things in your heart that can exist is pride and conceitedness and entitlement. And so one of the reasons that God will sometimes allow pain and suffering in our lives is to remove the pride and the sense of self-centeredness and, and, uh, and entitlement that we often have. I love what the Apostle Paul says. This is really fascinating. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia, right? So Paul's like, we, man, we were, going, we were going through some serious stuff, serious trials in Asia. And then he says, look at this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises people from the dead. You see what Paul says? He says, man, we were going through some hard stuff. It was terrible. The trial, he says, in fact, it was so difficult that it was even beyond our ability to endure. And he said, but God allowed that because he wanted to show us that he was sufficient and that we could rely on him. He was teaching us to stop relying on ourselves and to start relying on God. By the way, this brings up a really good point that I think is worth saying. Uh, There is a misconception among Christians that I think needs to be clarified. And the misconception goes something like this. Some of you have probably heard this, and some of you maybe have even said this before. But uh, raise your hand. Tell me if you've ever heard this statement before. Okay, this statement. God will never give you more than you can handle. How many of you guys have heard that before? Yeah, okay, I think all of us. I think I just need to be clear on this for a minute. That is not entirely true. It's just not. And my guess is you already knew that. But, but when you hear that, man, God will not give you more than you can handle. When people say that, what, what they're usually referring to is a passage in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, when you're tempted, God will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He says, but he will always provide a way out. That's what he says. God will, and when you're tempted, God will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He'll always give you a way out. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, do you notice what he says right here? He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Now, what is that? What's happening there? Well, here's where the confusion sets in. When Paul says we will never be tempted beyond our ability, what he's referring to is temptation to sin. That, that in our temptation for sin, that in our struggle to disobey God, God will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. He's always going to provide you a way out. But that speaks nothing of suffering. And the truth is that God will allow suffering beyond our ability. He will allow that and place that in our lives. 
And so this whole idea, God won't give you more than you can handle, look, it's a misconception. I mean, that, that idea, oh, God will never give you more than you can handle. Are you kidding me? You try telling that to someone who's lost their spouse. Oh, God won't give you more than you can handle. Is that a joke? Nobody can handle that. No one has ability within themselves to walk through that. You try telling that to someone who has a terminal illness. Oh, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. What? Are you kidding me? No way. That no one has the emotional wherewithal to be able to endure something like that. So maybe a better way to say it is this. Sometimes God will give you more than you can handle, but he will always give you what you need. Sometimes he will allow you to be tested beyond your ability, like that passage said, because he wants to take you to the end of yourself to show you that he is reliable. And he wants to burn away self-dependence and pride and conceit, and he wants to burn away entitlement, because those things are, are dangerous to us. And he wants to burn them away. So God can do good things through our pain. He wants to refine our faith. He wants to remove our pride. Here's, here's another one. The last one I'll give you. He wants to use our suffering to help reach others. That our suffering and our pain gives us a unique opportunity to reach other people. The Bible talks about this. Once again, the Apostle Paul says it so well in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says it this way. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Listen to this who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. You hear what he says? He says, man, we, we go through troubles and God gives us comfort and that uniquely positions us to help other people who are going through similar trials and we can comfort them with the comfort that we receive from God. I put this down in my notes. For some of you, if you're taking notes, maybe you wanna jot this down. Your greatest point of pain is often your greatest place of ministry. All right, let me just repeat that once again because that's an important statement. Your greatest point of pain is often your greatest place in ministry. When you think about the pain that you've been through, the loss of someone or a messy divorce or for some of you, the terrible thing that happened uh, in your upbringing, the abuse, oftentimes your greatest point of pain uniquely qualifies you to be able to walk, along, walk alongside other people who are going through similar pain and be able to comfort them and to help them as they walk through. You are uniquely qualified to do that in ways that other, others of us are not. When you go through suffering and pain, it makes you incredibly useful in the lives of other people. And you say, see, what all, what all this is telling us, by the way, is it's basically telling us this, that God is a master jujitsu artist. Right? I know that's exactly what some of you were just thinking right now. You're like, that's exactly what I was thinking, right? But you guys know what jiu-jitsu is, right? Jiu-jitsu is uh, it's a form of martial arts. Um, but unlike the other forms of martial arts, jiu-jitsu, rather, rather than training their students to forcefully attack, basically jiu-jitsu, what it literally means is it means the art of yielding. That's what jiu-jitsu is. And so rather, than, rather than, than training their students to forcefully attack, they actually train their students to yield to the attacks of their opponent and leverage their attacks against them, right? So in jiu-jitsu, if you have an opponent who's running after you and is ready to fight, like right, they're ready to attack you and they're aggressively coming after you, a jiu-jitsu master, rather than uh, meeting that opposition with equal force, they will instead yield to that assault, and then they will leverage in as few moves as possible. I don't know what I'm doing right now. But in as few moves as possible, right, they will, they will somehow leverage that assault and they will use that force against their opponent for their own victory. And I'm just telling you, that is God. Okay, God is a master jujitsu artist. 
And he doesn't cause pain and he doesn't cause suffering. But listen, he will use every last square inch of the pain and the suffering and the hardship that you're going through. And he will leverage that so that he can gain victory over that so he can produce something in your life. So the Bible says. That's God's MO, all right? And if you don't believe me, look at the cross. The cross is the greatest jujitsu move of all time. The enemy inflicted a painful blow on Jesus Christ. And in that one painful blow, that became Jesus Christ's single most victorious moment. Right there, man. It's awesome. And so he's this master jujitsu artist. He wants to take our pain. He wants to take our suffering. He doesn't waste it. He wants to refine us. And he wants to make us more into his image. And so the Bible says that's what God is going after. That's what, so listen, we can consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know something. And what do we know? We know that our faith is being tested and that that testing is going to produce something. And what does it ultimately lead to? Well, that's the last verse. Look at verse four with me. Here's what it says in verse four. It says, let perseverance finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I love that because you know what that tells us? It tells us that there is a destination that God wants to take us to through our pain and through our suffering. There is a goal. There is an end result that God is trying to bring us to through our pain and through our suffering. And what is that end result? It is maturity and completion, not lacking anything. Which that begs a good question then. What is the standard of maturity? What is the standard of completion? What is the picture that Jesus is trying to, to paint? Where is, he, where is the destination he's trying to take us? And I'll just tell you right now, anytime you see those terms, mature and complete in the New Testament, I'll tell you what it's talking about because it's always talking about the same thing. It's talking about Christ-likeness. I'll just, just to prove my point, I'll give you one verse on this. I could give you hundreds. I'll just give you one. Ephesians 4, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith the knowledge of God's son that we will become mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So, so what is it that we know in suffering? Here's what we know. God is taking us somewhere. And where is he taking us? He wants us to look more like Jesus. He wants to act, to think, to be motivated, to have the character of Jesus. Now listen, I think I just need to be really straightforward here because there's a lot of confusion on this. And I, I really feel like this is, it's necessary to clarify this. The goal of following Jesus is not that you're simply more comfortable and that, you're, that your kids are better behaved and that you're a more moral person and that you're healthier and wealthier. That is not the goal of following Jesus. I think I've got to be clear about that. The goal of following Jesus, and I don't mean to insult your intelligence because this is going to sound really simple, but the goal of following Jesus is to follow Jesus. It's to become like Jesus because that's the guy that we're following, right? And listen, I think that, I think that when, we, when we don't understand that, all of Christianity becomes extremely confusing and it becomes extremely frustrating. But once we understand that where God wants to take us is that he wants us to look more like Christ, everything starts to make sense. Did you guys ever have it before when, when you were playing a game and you didn't really understand the rules, and you didn't really understand, you know, what the objective of the game was, and it was really frustrating, it was really confusing, it never happened to you. I remember when I, um, when I was a teenager, someone was teaching me how to play Euchre. You guys ever play Euchre, the card game Euchre? 
is an incredibly complicated game. The rules are crazy. And I remember when I was starting to learn the game, I did not understand what was going on. And so I'm like, I don't understand why an ace trumps, trumps, or why a jack trumps an ace. Like, that makes no sense to me. Or why is it that a ten of spades can trump an ace of diamonds in this game, but the next time it does, I didn't understand. I was like, why is there a kitty? What does that have to do with anything, right? And I just didn't make no sense to me, and I was confused, and I was frustrated until I learned the objective of the game. When I learned the objective, I was like, oh, that makes all the sense in the world. And for some of you, following Jesus is deeply confusing. You go through pain and you go through suffering and you view it as, as an interruption to the life that God wants for you. You're like, I don't know why I'm going through this thing. Man, I, I just want to get it. I need to quickly get around this so I can get on to the things that God wants me to do. Why would God allow this, this thing happen in my, why would God, and listen, I think that we've misunderstood the objective of Christianity. The objective of following Jesus is not that God wants to give you temporary happiness in a more cushioned life. That is not the goal. The goal is he wants to give you something better than that deeper than that. He doesn't want you to have temporary happiness. He wants you to have eternal joy. And the way that we get eternal joy and ultimate fulfillment is when we become like his son, Jesus Christ. And that's where he's taking us. Look, does God have the power to stop your pain and your suffering, whatever you're going through right now? Is he powerful enough to do that? Yes. But the sheer fact that he isn't must tell us that there is something else that is more important to him than our comfort. And we know that because what is it, man? It's Christ-likeness. He wants us to look like Jesus. Great theologian A.W. Tozer said it so well. A.W. Tozer, I like to call him Toes. I don't know where that came from. He said this, he said, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. You see what he's saying? He's like, when I realize that the objective of following Jesus is to be like Jesus, all of a sudden, a bunch of stuff makes sense to me, right? Everything, because if we're following Jesus, Jesus himself was not exempt from suffering. The Bible tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And so if we're following him, how can we expect that we won't, ex- we won't experience the same, right? And the goal is he wants to make us more like Jesus. He wants us to love like Jesus. God wants us to be motivated like Jesus. He wants us to be patient like Jesus. He wants us to have the character of Jesus. He wants us to be more like Christ, and that's the goal. And when we don't understand that, it's confusing and it's frustrating. Reminds me a lot of the great theological masterpiece of the 1980s, The Karate Kid. And... uh, if you guys have been coming to the Medina campus for a while, I apologize because you've probably heard me talk about the Karate Kid a lot. It's because I love that movie, and it has incredible spiritual metaphors. And, uh, and if, I've, if, if I've told you this illustration before, I apologize, but I just got to tell you, when I, when I, one of the first sermons I ever gave uh, when I was 19 years old, I used this illustration from the Karate Kid, and I, it's been so unbelievably helpful to me. Over the, over the time that I've been walking with Jesus that I just really hope and pray it'll be helpful to you too. But basically, you guys know Karate Kid, right? The original, not the new one, but the, the original movie, the good one, uh, with Ralph Macchio, right? And uh, basically the story is about, uh, the main character's name is Daniel LaRusso. He's the new kid in town. And uh, so he goes to high school, starts getting bullied by a group of teenage karate renegades, which, you know, was my high school experience too. And... Um, <laughs> So they started bullying him, and he was getting his butt kicked. And then, anyway, he, he started to, he kind of started crossing paths with this older gentleman named Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi, as many of you know, is this gentle, unassuming karate master. And, uh, and so Daniel finds out that Mr. Miyagi is a karate master. 
And he basically goes to him because he's getting bullied. And he goes, Mr. Miyagi, he's like, you have to teach me karate. You have to teach me to be like you. I want to be like you because I'm getting bullied and I want to get, so, so can you teach me karate? Can I be like you? And after a lot of convincing and conversation, Mr. Miyagi eventually agrees. Okay, so he says to Daniel, meet me at my house tomorrow at 6 o'clock a.m. So the next day, Daniel comes, right? You guys remember this? Daniel comes to his house. And he's like, all right, Mr. Miyagi, I'm ready to learn karate. He's like, where are we going to start? We're going to start with some punches. We're going to start with some kicks. And Mr. Miyagi, remember this? He gives him a bucket and he gives him a towel. And he goes, wax on, wax off, right? And he takes him to a parking lot that's full of cars. And he says, wax on, wax off. And you see Daniel, he's really confused. He's like, what, what is this? I thought I was learning karate. But he goes with it and he waxes the cars. And, and Mr. Miyagi has he done it in a real specific way. Wax on. It whacks off, right? And he, so Daniel does the whole thing. Hours and hours later, he comes back to Mr. Miyagi. He's like, okay, Mr. Miyagi, I'm done waxing your cars. He's like, so what, we're going to learn karate? Mr. Miyagi goes, come back tomorrow, 6 a.m., you know. The next day, Daniel comes back to the house again. He's like, all right, Mr. Miyagi, I'm ready to learn karate. Like, we're going to learn punches today. You guys remember? He's like, paint the fence. <laughs> paint the, up and down, paint the fence. Exactly this way, paint the fence. Daniel's like, Okay, he's real confused. You can tell he's kind of agitated, but he goes with it, and he does it. And the next day he comes back, and you know, he's, like, he's like, are we going to learn karate? And Mr. Miyagi's like, come back tomorrow, 6 a.m. And comes back the next day, and it's paint the house, paint the house. And then Daniel's getting real frustrated. The next day it's send the deck, send the deck. You guys remember all this? And my favorite scene in the movie, I love this. I still can't, I still can't watch this scene without getting chills because I have attributed spiritual significance to it. But I, I watch this every time. So you guys remember this scene? Daniel, the last five days, he's been doing all these chores and he is just fed up. He's so mad and he marches to Mr. Miyagi. And he's like, Mr. Miyagi, you know, I'm, you're supposed to be teaching me karate and all I'm doing is your chores and I'm painting your house and I'm sanding your deck. And I don't, it's like, this is so dumb. I'm tired of this. I quit. He starts walking away. And then Mr. Miyagi, you guys remember this? He goes, Daniel son. <laughs> and then Daniel turns around. He's like, what? You know, maybe not just like that, but he's like, you know, what? And he goes, show me, send the dick. And, and Daniel's like confused. And he gets down. He's like, da, 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 da. <laughs> like, no, show me, send the dick. So Daniel goes through the motions. He's like, show me paint the fence. He shows him paint the fence. He's like, show me paint the house. Show me wax on, wax off. And Daniel's real confused. You can see it. But then Mr. Miyagi, this is the scene. Oh, man. Then Mr. Miyagi just launches into an attack, starts punching and kicking Daniel. And Daniel flawlessly <laughs> starts blocking all of Mr. Miyagi's assaults. And in that one moment, you can see it. The light turns on and he realizes, I am learning karate, right? The past five days have not been a waste of my time. Mr. Miyagi didn't waste one moment of my time, but I look more like him now, right? Listen to me, listen to me. God is not doing something to you. He is doing something in you because he wants to accomplish something through you. God does not waste a moment of your suffering and a moment of your pain. And if you walk with him through this thing that you're going through, he will make you more like Jesus Christ. See, God's ambition is that the, the terrible thing that you're going through, and listen, for some of you, it is terrible. 
what you're going through. I am not trying to minimize that. But God's ambition is that when you get to the other side of that thing, that all of a sudden you're going to find yourself and you're going to be like, where did I learn to love like this? My goodness, I love like Jesus. Where did I learn to get this endurance? You know, why am I doing this with my hands? And I, you know, that's where God wants to take us though, man. That's where he wants to take you. This fire is not going to consume you. That is a promise. If you walk with God through your pain and through your suffering, it will not consume you. It will refine you. And it will make you look more like Jesus. And so you know what you can do? You know what we can do? You know what I can do? We can consider it pure joy. When we face trials of many kinds, not because we like the trials, but because of what we know. And what do we know? We know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance and perseverance is gonna finish its work and we are gonna look more like Jesus. God doesn't waste our pain. This fire will not consume you. It will refine you. Let's pray. Jesus, I just wanna say thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this hope that God, pain and suffering and loss are not outside of your sovereign control. God, you don't waste, you don't waste one ounce, one square inch of the suffering and hurt that we have in this life. But you can use it to redeem us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that we wouldn't resist it. I pray that we would join you in it, that we would consider it pure joy because we know something, not because we feel, not because we guess, because we know, we know what you're after. You want us to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to be motivated like Jesus, to have the character of Jesus. And it's only there that true life is found. And so I pray that as we go from this place or for the person who's really journeying through hardship right now, pain, suffering, loss, a messy divorce, God, lost the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent. But I pray that right now with that, that person who's going through that dark place, that you would comfort them, would help them to see your hand, that you're good, that you're a good father who loves his children. And God, you care for us and you wanna make us more like Jesus. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to get on board with that or that we wouldn't resist it, but we would join you in that endeavor. So I ask you that you would produce that in us and produce that through us. I want to pray in Christ's name.